0: Pastor John's text this morning will be from the book of Hebrews, so if you would turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. If you don't have a Bible with you, the, uh, there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and uh, this reading is on page 1429. Hear then the word of the Lord. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great suffering, a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised.
1: The Christian church in America suffers from about 350 years of dominance and prosperity. What I mean by dominance is that for almost all of this country's history from the Puritans on, the Christian ethos has been the the dominant one. And to be a Christian is, is to be a person who's accepted and viewed as normal and even one who has some traits that are beneficial to the country. What I mean by prosperity is that uh, being a Christian and fitting in to that ethos has for a long time resulted in things going well for us. And so to be a Christian has, has been a plus. And what I mean by the church suffering from that suffering from this dominance and suffering from this prosperity, is that this has resulted in a massively ingrained and unbiblical mindset. Drink to excess. And therefore, you will probably be spared the tragedies and family heartaches of alcoholism, and that's better for you. If you act like a Christian, you will probably work hard and be thrifty and probably will succeed in business, and that's better for you. If you act like a Christian, you'll probably be kind and generous, and and uh, at least then a few people will think well of you, and that'll be better for you. So we can all say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, what's wrong with things going better for you? Why do you say it's a suffering that has come upon the church, that we have grown to feel that this is the way it is, this is the way it should be, and we're at home here. Things go better with Christ. The problem is that we have gotten things so out of proportion that we can't really even imagine what the New Testament church was like, I think. We have taken things that are little peripheral spinoffs of the faith, like not getting AIDS. That's no big deal in eternity. Believe me. Those simple spinoffs out here at the edge of Christianity, and we've made them the cherished treasure of the middle, and we've elevated them to the point where well if things don't go better for us then what's the use of being a christian and therefore it becomes almost impossible for us to imagine what what happened in this text what it was like to be a christian when there was no christian america no ethos built up over 300 years of puritan protestant work ethic this text hebrews 10:32 to 36 Fills me. Every time I go back to it, and it's one of my favorites, it just fills me with a longing to be set free from domesticated, comfort-seeking, entertainment-addicted American Christianity. I just want to be so free. And this text, when you read it, mm, it just makes chills run up and down your back. Saying, now that is authenticity. If I could be like that, I'd be real. And and everybody wants to be real. Nobody wants to be phony. Nobody wants to just have a little glaze of Christianity over an ordinary secular life, pursuing the same goals that everybody pursues who doesn't believe. So let's read it and pray as we read it that God would ignite in us a longing and make it real that we would be free from the inauthenticity which we see exposed in this text. Verse 32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Now, let's take that word enlightened and just ponder it for a minute, because that's the beginning of everything for an individual. That's a description of their conversion. So let's think about why he used that word enlightened. There are if you track down that word in the rest of the New Testament, it's used in two ways. This word photizomai, photizo, which we get photon and photosynthesis and all those light words in English. One of its uses is that light goes on so that you see more clearly. And one of its uses is that light goes on so that you shine more brightly. OK, now let me give you an example of each one. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul's prays that God would say more now and the eyes of the heart so that we might see the hope to which we've been called, the greatness of our inheritance and the power at work within us. So what happens when enlightenment happens is we see on the inside lights go on and the glory of Christ becomes more manifest. Another example is this shining idea, not seeing, but shining. We become the the thing that's shining rather than see the thing that's shining. And the example there is, for example, uh, in Philippians 2.15 where it says uh, that Christians become like lights shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So now I come back to verse 32, having seen these two uses. There is an enlightenment that makes you see more clearly, and there's an enlightenment that makes you shine more brightly. I say, now which is it here in verse 32? And uh, I'm not sure, but when I think about what conversion meant to them and what resulted from their conversion, I'm inclined to think that both meanings are here. Let me just show you. The gospel came to them. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, came into the world. He lived a sinless life. He died for sinners. He rose again. Believe on him and you will have everlasting life with him in glory. And when they heard that message, lights went on inside. The Holy Spirit moved in, opened what Paul calls the eyes of the heart. Another word for it is rebirth. Another word is born again. Another word is conversion. Lights went on and the Jesus Christ who up till that time had been a myth or fairy tale or totally unknown figure or just a historical, interesting, ethical teacher suddenly shines with moral beauty and ethical brightness and utterly, totally persuasive, winsome, divine glory. And you cannot keep from bawling down and saying, He is God, I love Him, I will trust Him, I will follow Him, I will bank on Him. That's conversion. That's what happens in conversion. But as soon as that happened, they started to shine. As soon as the glory comes in and you see it and Jesus is embraced as the glorious son of God that he is, more valuable than anything else in the world, your life starts to change. Your life starts to take on his priorities and his values and his way of doing things. And then people can see a shining breaking out on your behavior and in your attitude and in your words and in your actions. And then something happened, namely suffering. Three S's. You see, you shine, and you suffer. That's the sequence. That was early Christian experience. Now, I don't want to overstate the case of suffering here because Jesus said, remember in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds. And the response Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That sounds positive. Success. (laughs) Woo. Good. Convert. Persuasion. They came along. They agreed. The problem with absolutizing that response is that four verses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Not positive, negative, bad news, pain, suffering. So you can't absolutize either of these. Sometimes when your light shines, people say, God must be real. Tell me about it." Other times, it is so offensive, it is so personally indicting that hatred emerges and there's, there's reproach, there's vilification, there's persecution, which is what happened in this church when they started to shine. In the former days, after they were enlightened, they started to suffer. Evidently, they began to say things and think things and do things that were not politically correct. In those days, and it didn't go well with them. Let's read what happened. Verse 33. They suffered partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. That's one way. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. That's another way. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Now, that sheds a lot of light, that little phrase, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, back on the first two ways of suffering. Let's see if we can reconstruct the situation a little bit. Um, you got two ways of suffering that happened once they were enlightened. One is they were made a spectacle of through reproaches and tribulations, and then the next phrase says some of them became prisoners. So the, the first way is there's an active uh, assault on the Christians, for whatever reason, you know, that's against the gods or uh, you eat blood. That was one of the common criticisms of the Lord's Supper. And just, you know, you, you can make up all kinds of things about people if you hate them bad enough. You, you can find a way to nail them. And they were thrown in jail, some of them. Now, the second way is that those who were not thrown in jail sympathized with those who were, and their sympathy got them in trouble. That's what it says here. Verse 34, you showed sympathy to the prisoners, and here comes the result. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now, what happened? Well, this is not overly fantasizing, is it, to say it went something like this. Owing to what they said or the lifestyle that they had or the way they were behaving, they really made some people mad. So mad that they could make it an official thing and some of them were put in jail. Some of them were not taken. They were meeting in a little prayer meeting there and, uh, they started to talk about whether they should go visit them in jail. Now jails in those days were not comfortable. Often, no food was given to prisoners, only relatives. If the relatives wanted to bring food, they could bring food. Then they'd know who the real complicitors were. So they had to say, well, now, if we go and visit them, then we might also be thrown in jail. And one person perhaps said, look, I think I have a word from the Lord. Didn't the teachers, when they came and preached to us, didn't the apostles tell us the story of Jesus' parable that uh, he said, I was in prison and you visited me and and the people said, how did we visit you in prison? You weren't even around. And he said, inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. And Wouldn't that suggest that Jesus would want us to go visit them? I think my vote is that we go. And they prayed and They decided to go. And they went. And then one of two things happened. I'm not sure how it went right there. Their property was seized. Now, you can't tell from the language whether it's an official seizure, like a fine, or a mob seizure. But either way, here they are. They leave their simple little dwellings. They start walking down the road to the prison and suddenly they turn around and their houses are being plundered. Throwing the furniture out in the street, setting fire to the house. And you know what they did right at that moment? They sang. I think. They joyfully accepted the plundering of the property joyfully. Now, that's strange. That's really strange. I mean, let's say we all finish up here in about ten minutes, and we leave and we go out to the parking lot over there, and every windshield in the parking lot is bashed out. And spray-painted on the side of every car is all christians are bigots do you think we could have a, a a good choir gathering in the parking lot or would you would you feel like this is what i meant at the beginning when i said we're addicted we are suffering under expectations that are not biblical or would your first reaction be We live in America. You don't do that in America. We have laws in America. I'm a citizen of this country. And let's find them and let's take them to court. it's, it's, It's a big issue about what kinds of legal rights one takes. But if that's your first reaction, you're out of touch with this text and with early Christianity. Because it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. On February 21st of this year in Cairo, Egypt, five Christians were arrested. One Egyptian, one New Zealander, and three Americans. And they were put in the Tura prison in the south of Cairo, charged with forming a missionary organization. And uh, two of the wives, the wife of Brian Eckhart and Thomas Martin, uh, were obviously in the category of those who sympathized with those who were in prison. And uh, they called their husbands repeatedly and unashamedly on the telephone and got through periodically. And the result of their sympathetic activity was that they were evicted from their homes with the two days Notice, in other words, both then and now, it is costly to let your light shine in contexts where it may not want to be seen. People may not want your light to shine. And Jesus does not say, let your light shine where people want to see it. He just says, let your light shine. It takes a great deal of courage, and that courage is rooted in this text in what? In a detachment from things, an incredible detachment, a a very un-American attachment, detachment from things. That's the key here. um, These people had possessions, and they held them so loosely And they were so little attached to their hearts that when the possession was snatched away from them, violently snatched away from them, there was no big rip. There was no big tear. I have a grandfather's clock in my living room. 1920. It was my grandmother's and it was my mother's. And then when my mother died, it's mine. A real test would be, for me, if somebody just came in and whacked it to pieces with a hatchet. Now, and you, you've all got little things in your lodge. That's a pretty silly one compared to, say, our children or our health. But we all have things. And this text is calling us this morning to hold them very loosely. So that if they are snatched violently out of our hands, there is no rip in our soul. No flaming vindictiveness in our spirit. Where does that freedom come from? Where does that kind of loose-holding detachment of things in life come from? And the answer to this text is, is very clear. It doesn't come from some superior kind of grace given to saints and martyrs. It comes from basic Christian believing. These people cherish the reward of heaven more than they cherish the things of the earth. Verse 34b, I've said it, let's read it again. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How? Where did that come from? Here's the next phrase knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence or your boldness, which has great reward. Now, right there, I think I see the key or a key to the anemic nature of the American church. The American church is a fairly anemic Church, I was, I was with, uh, Leith Anderson last Tuesday for lunch. And we were talking afterwards, Leith Anderson, Pastor Wooddale. And he said, John, isn't it true that there's revival almost everywhere in the world but America? God is doing wonders almost everywhere but here. We're going to, we're going to hell in a basket or something like that, he said. The church is fairly anemic here. My analysis is that one of the reasons is, and I think it's one of the main ones, is that we are at home in Disneyland. This is Disneyland. This room is Disneyland. This suit is Disneyland. This electronic device here is Disneyland. The cars you came in are Disneyland. The meals you will eat and buy today at who knows what per shot will be Disneyland we live in Disneyland compared to where everybody else lives. Almost everybody. There are a few other Disneylands in Western Europe. And we're at home. We're addicted. We don't even know we live in Disneyland. We think we need a third or fourth suit. We use words like need. Need. For the most ridiculous accessories. We do. And I'm not about to tell you which ones you must get rid of. <laughs> We've been through this before as a church. when I wrote the chapter on money and desiring God. And we talked about the house at the lake. The lake. It's that spot in Minnesota where all these houses are. And I didn't say you couldn't have one. But if you're at home, if you're at home in this Disneyland, so that if they burn down that house, or they smashed your car, or they took all your heirlooms, or they fired you from your job, there would be this rip that would cause more anger than singing, you're out of touch. You're out of touch and you're weak. The reason the American church is weak is because we are at home in this Disneyland. Now, I think it's always going to be a Disneyland, okay? Till Jesus comes. But you know why God has created this Disneyland? For missions and for the poor. He makes people rich to give money away so that they can show that their treasure is not their riches. That's why he gives people money and for no other reason. If you live at a level above what is needed, what is common sense, what is ordinary, and who in the world can decide what that is? I can't. Then you are wasting God's resources that were meant to be channeled to send the two thousand by two thousand to the unreached peoples. Paul said, We have nothing, and yet we possess everything. If you believe that, that will make you free. Free! Free! This text is calling us to have our hearts satisfied in the age to come and not in this age, and therefore to be radically free. Let me close by pointing you to two words in the text, the words better and the word abiding. These people had found satisfaction, not in this age, but in the age to come, possessions in the age to come, reward in the age to come, Christ, the summary of all that in the age to come, and it said They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, knowing that they had, here comes the first word, a better possession. And secondly, an abiding one. Now, that ought to cause bells to go off for people who've been around for a while. What psalm, what verse in the psalms captures those two things? Psalm 16 11 at the end you got the right verse david wrong number it's the uh, it's the verse that says thou dost show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand are pleasures forever now that's the word better and abiding in this text you see it they looked at their possessions and they said I like having a house. I like having clothing. I like having um, food and furniture and transportation. I think God calls me to have those, but then they lost them. Now, what do you do at that moment? If that's your life, you get angry. If it's, if it's not your life, if you can turn away and say, and I have furniture and I have a house and I have a king, and I have a happiness and a joy and a fulfillment there that is, number one, better, and number two, abiding, it will never end, then I can sing. I can sing. And so what this text is calling us to this morning is to fall out of love with the world. Radically out of love with the world. And to fall in love with heaven and the age to come. And I'll tell you, this is where the... The battle is to be fought, and this is the hardest battle to fight. Because here's what's going to happen at the end of this sermon in two minutes. A hundred or two or three hundred of you are going to walk out of here. I hope it's more than that. And you're going to have a rumbling inside of you that says, yes, yes, I want to be real. Yes, I want to be authentic. Yes, I want my treasure to be in heaven. Yes, I want Christ to count more than anything else. Yes, I want to lose my love of things and my addiction to this world and my bondage to entertainment. Yes. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, it'll be gone. It'll be gone. Because it's not like a vaccination that you only need once. Or smallpox, maybe. It's like a medicine that you've got to take every morning. You have to set your mind on things that are above every morning. You have to. I was meeting with a publisher. Oops, I said two minutes, and now I'm going to make it three. If I tell you the story, <laughs> I'll tell you the story anyway, and just forgive me. Um, I was I was meeting with John Van Deest from Multnomah Questar. Uh, publications, and I said, I dream about writing a book someday, John, when I'm old. And the title of the book would be Why I Stand in Awe of God. And it'll have 365 pages, one page for every day, and one verse or two, and and then just a statement of why today I stand in awe of God. And I said, the reason I think I need to write this book is, number one, I have to, to start all over again every morning standing in awe of God. I have to find a reason in the Bible. Do you wake up in the morning having read the Bible 50 times and can't think of a reason to feel awe? Can't think of a reason to be happy? Can't think of a reason to be triumphant and to enter the day with the sense of victory? That happens to me all the time. The battle has to be fought every single day. And so I commend the battle to you. The Lord will help us. Let's fight it together. Let's fight. Oh Father in heaven, I pray that you'd be stirring now by your Holy Spirit and even as the end, at the end here as the prayer team stand at the front ready to pray with people in need, would you touch people across this congregation right now and before they go away for Mother's Day things, a few of them, Lord, need prayer. Need prayer for a physical condition or a situation at work or a root of fear or a bondage to things or a friendship or something that's burdening them this morning. And I just pray that you'd give gifts to the prayer team that these people need. And now, Lord, unleash us on this world to shine. And may we say with Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And all the people said, Amen.